I love the Chicago Cubs. Amen. Yes, I love the Chicago Cubs, which means I hate the St. Louis Cardinals. Now, actually, let, let me qualify that. I need to nuance this a little bit. I'm sorry. I don't hate the St. Louis Cardinals. I loathe the St. Louis Cardinals. <laughs> that said, though, I was greatly saddened by what happened on Saturday, June 22nd, 2002. For those of you who don't know, that was the date of a scheduled game between the Chicago Cubs and the St. Louis Cardinals there at Wrigley Field. However, the game was canceled because of an eerie discovery. You see, the Cardinals' ace pitcher was found dead in a Chicago hotel room. 33-year-old Daryl Kyle, who wore number 57, had been a major league pitching sensation for over 12 years and had appeared in three All-Star games. At a recent physical, before that game, the six-foot-five athlete seemed to be in excellent health. Yet when the medical examiners conducted his autopsy, they discovered that Kyle had died from a massive heart attack. His main coronary artery was 90% blocked. Think about that. Daryl Kyle appeared to be perfectly healthy, yet his heart was diseased. I wonder, do you think something similar could be said of a person spiritually? What I mean is, can someone have the appearance of being spiritually healthy, being alive to God, yet inwardly, his or her heart is spiritually diseased? In fact, how would you know if, in fact, you did have a hardened heart? or a diseased heart towards God? What would be those symptoms? What would be those signs to indicate that inwardly in a person's heart, they're spiritually diseased? Because faith, the Bible is quite clear. Far more dangerous, far more dangerous than a physical heart attack is having a hardened heart towards God. And why is that the case? Because the consequences, please hear me, are eternal. This is why there are many passages in Scripture that warn against, written to Christians, warning against Christians having a hardened heart towards the Lord. Consider, for example, what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart 
a diseased heart, he says, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not what? Harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You know who that is? That's you. That's me. Today, we are hearing the voice of God as the word of God is proclaimed. And the author of Hebrew exhorts us who have ears to hear to not harden our hearts. Man, what an important command, amen? But here's my question, what does that look like? What are the signs of a hardened heart? Indeed, can we even know? If our hearts are hardened, or will we be unable to tell? Just like Daryl Kyle, six foot five, early 30s, was unable to tell that his physical heart was diseased. Can we even know? Well, Faith, one of the many things I love about the Bible is that it not only gives us instruction, but it also gives us examples both positive and negative, so we can see in real life what it means to obey these commands and what it looks like when we don't. This is to say, I have good news for you this morning, we can know whether our hearts have begun to go and slide down the scale of being hardened towards God. I want to demonstrate to you how our passage this morning identifies what those symptoms are. Faith, this morning we're going to once again look at 1 Samuel 28. And you recall that when we last studied 1 Samuel 28, we discovered that this, the final night of Saul's life, it really illustrates this, this chapter, this episode in Saul's life, it really illustrates the warning of Hebrews chapter 3. This is to say the main point of 1 Samuel 28 is simply this, and that is, do not harden your hearts to the word of God. If you want to see what it looks like to, to have a heart that's hardened towards the word of God, 1 Samuel 28 is it. And you'll remember from our time last week that Samuel, when he appears and he speaks to Saul, he gives two reasons why we ought not to have our hearts hardened to God. You remember what they were? It was first because God may turn away from you, and then secondly, because tomorrow is not promised. Last week, we looked at the reasons why. Why ought we not allow our hearts to become hardened to the Word of God? But here's the thing, faith. If we are going to actually obey the warning of Hebrews 3, if we're actually going to obey this command to not harden our hearts, 
simply knowing the reasons why is insufficient for us to obey. We not only need the reason why we are to obey this command, but we also need to know what the signs and the symptoms are of a hardened heart so that if we discover them in ourselves, we can confess, repent, and turn away from them. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look closely at Saul in order to understand the symptoms of a heart that's become hardened to God's word. So if you haven't already, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 28. That's page 250. And that paperback Bible in the seat in front of you. And we're going to read through this chapter once more. And I invite you to follow along in your copy of God's word as I, as I read. We're going to pick things up in verse 3. Right? Hear now the word of the Lord. 1 Samuel 28, verse 3. Now, Samuel had died, and all Israel mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land, as we talked about last week. This was in obedience to the law of Moses. Many, many places in the Old Testament, God commands his people to do nothing with these people and for kings to get them out of the land. So once you think about this, as we read this chapter, Saul knew these people were bad news. He knew it was disobedient to the Lord to seek them out. So that's why verse 3 says he did that. Verse 4, then here's the crisis. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Geboa. Now notice verse 5. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was what? Afraid in his heart, trembled greatly. Saul's life is just cruising along. And if we've been reading our Bibles carefully, we know he's been cruising along in sin. He hasn't been walking with the Lord. Now all of a sudden, he sees this huge army, and he's fearful. He's fearful for his life. So what does he do? Verse 5, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim, or by prophets. And you recall, this is whose fault? His fault. Because you remember, one of the main ways that God communicated during that time was through dreams, through priests, and through the prophets. The main prophet of the land, land is Samuel, and he's what? Dead. Back a couple chapters earlier, the priests were all killed by who? Saul, there's the one who had the Urim, right? Saul killed all the priests except one, Abiathar, who's now with who? David, and he has the Urim. So Samuel's dead, and he slaughtered all the priests. No wonder heaven is silent. Verse 7. Now notice this. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, or a witch maybe as your translations have it, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So notice, just in a couple of verses, Saul knows this is wrong. That's why he cut him out of the land. 
Yet now he's going to them. This is revealing something of the motive of his heart. And we're going to get to this in a little bit more. Verse 8, So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. Now, this is worth repeating. It's really important. We mentioned this last week. But the Bible is clear. The dead do not speak. Demons interact, but not the dead. All right? So he's, he's wanting to, to conjure up the dead. Let's see what happens. Divine for me whom I shall name to you. Verse 9. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he's cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord. <laughs> Gosh. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. We're going to talk about how audacious that is. Verse 11. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Now, I think part of the reason why this woman is freaking out is because this has never, ever happened before. I think this is a one-time God allowing the actual prophet to appear to Saul to speak to him. That's why she's freaking out. And you're going to see how she describes him in a moment here. Furthermore, I, I think this is the case because what Samuel says later on in this chapter is almost exactly what he said to Saul back in chapter 15. But notice how the narrative unfolds, verse 13. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up. And he is wrapped in a robe. The last time we heard about his robe was in chapter 15 when it was torn and Samuel said to Saul, so your kingdom will be torn from you. He's in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress. I'm in great distress because I know I've been rebelling against the Lord and I need to repent. Is that what he says? I, I feel the weight of my sin and the decisions I've made and I need to get right with the Lord because he's not speaking to me. Is that what he says? No, he says this. I'm in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. <laughs> and man, I wish I could be there. I wish I could see the appearance of this temporarily resurrected vision of Samuel when he responds to Saul. And he says in verse 16, Why then do you ask me? Since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, 
When you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, the author of Hebrews says. When you hear his voice, obey, do not harden. But that's exactly what Saul did. Because notice the indictment here. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you to this day. And what's that thing? God's silent. He's turned away. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. Translation, you're going to die tomorrow. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Now notice Saul's response. He has just been told, this is your last night. Tomorrow you would die. Let me ask you, what would you do in that situation? You don't have to say it out loud. But what if you were told by God, I've seen your sin, you're going to perish tomorrow. What would you do? Notice what Saul does. Verse 20, Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, feared, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. There was no strength in him, pretty nothing all day and all night. He was most likely fasting because he was approaching the medium. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life into your hand and have listened to what you have to say. Now, therefore, you also, what's the word? Obey your servant. Samuel just condemned Saul for not obeying who? God. Now, notice, Saul's going to obey not God, but a medium. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had fattened a fattened calf in the house. She quickly killed it. She took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. Amen and amen. This is God's word. One morning, a customs officer noticed a truck pulling up at the border. Suspicious, he ordered the driver out and searched the vehicle. He pulled off the panels, the bumpers, and the wheel cases, but did not find a single scrap of contraband. Still suspicious, yet at a loss as to know where else to search, the custom officer just waved the driver through. Well, the next week, the same driver arrives, again in a truck. Again, the official searches and again finds nothing illicit. And over the years, this official tries full body searches, x-rays, and sonar, anything he can think of. And each week, the same man drives up in a truck, but no mysterious cargo ever appears. And each time, reluctantly, the custom officer just waves the driver on. Well, finally, after many years, when the officer is about to retire, 
the driver pulls up once more. And the officer says, look, man, let's just be honest. I know you're a smuggler. I know you're smuggling something. Don't deny it. He says, but for the life of me, I cannot figure out what it is you've been smuggling over the border all these years. And the officer says, look, today's my last day. I'm retiring you, and I swear to you, no harm's going to come to you. Can you please tell me, tell me, what have you been smuggling all these years? You know what the driver said? He looked up and he said, trucks. <laughs> Sometimes it's easy for us to miss those things that are big and obvious, like trucks. This is to say we can often miss the forest for the trees. And that can certainly be the case in regards to this chapter, can it? I mean, man, there are all sorts of aspects to the story that we can get caught up on, rabbit holes. So much so, though, please hear me, that we can miss the obvious application from the text. You see, as we discussed earlier, the main point of this text is a warning. Saul shows us what it looks like to harden your heart. This is to say he demonstrates the symptoms. And faith, there is an obvious application from this passage that is often missed. As we're looking at the life of Saul and we're seeing the symptoms of a hardened heart and we see these symptoms perhaps in ourselves, you know what the obvious application is? Repent. Faith, please hear me. This text is pleading with you and me that if you see any symptoms of a hardened heart in your life, repent. Turn away from your sin and turn towards Christ while you can still hear his voice. Indeed, I'm going to argue this is the intent of all the warning passages in Scripture. Right? All the warning passages in scriptures have the application to if you see these symptoms, if you're hardening your heart, if you're giving way to the deceitfulness of sin, if you're following the steps of Saul, if you see this in your life, be warned, Christian, turn from it. Like we talked about last week, it's so important for us to understand. And, and it shows up in our hymnody and our songs. Friend, when God saves a person, please hear me, when God saves a person, that person cannot lose his or her salvation. When a person is regenerated by the power of Christ, they belong to Christ forever, and they will persevere from the end. Think of what Jesus says in John 10, 28, that Jesus, he gives his own eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of his hands. Those who belong to Jesus will persevere in faith to the very end. Amen? Amen? This is a gospel promise. So, okay, then what are we to make of people like Saul? Or what are we to make of people who profess faith in Jesus Christ, yet are now living in blatant sin and have abandoned Christianity? Indeed, perhaps you know such a person. Well, the Bible speaks directly to this situation. 
Scripture puts such a person in one of two categories. One category is that they're simply a Christianized unbeliever. It's just to say they gave the appearance of being a Christian, but they had not been regenerated by the Spirit. Jesus speaks of this type of person in Matthew 13, doesn't he? Remember what that passage is about? In that text, Jesus gives the parable of the four soils. And according to Jesus, there are those who show signs of life, then eventually fall away. And Jesus makes it clear there are never true Christians to begin with. I think of what the Apostle John says in 1 John 2.19, right? He says, they went out from us because they were never what? Of us. This says to say they were never truly Christians. They were, we could say this, they were pretend believers. So that's one category. The other category taught in Scripture is that such a person is indeed a truly regenerate Christian who has fallen into grievous sin is in a need of restoration. And if they were ever genuinely Christian, they will return by repentance at some point. Okay? But here's the challenge. You know what the challenge is? Many times it's nearly impossible to tell the difference between the two. Nearly impossible. Is this person, in fact, a regenerate Christian who has fallen into grievous sin, or is this person one of the four soils that Jesus talks about and a Christianized unbeliever? It's often hard to discern, but please hear me, faith. What is not hard to discern is what we say to such people. You see, whether one person is in one category or another, you know what? Our message to them is the exact same. And you know what that message is? Repent. We call them to turn from their sin and turn towards Christ. Either like the prodigal or for the very first time. You know what we do? We warn them just like Hebrews does. So I'll just be practical here. Friend, this is why we ought not say to our friend or our family member who made a profession of faith in Christ yet is living like the devil and walking away from the Lord, we ought not say to them, hey, I know you once made a profession, perhaps as a kid. Look, and, and you're living for yourself and saying, that's okay. You know what? You, you just come back to Jesus when you feel ready. No. Instead, we say to them, with weight and with all love and sincerity, do not harden your heart. Repent and turn back to Christ. And if they say, well, why should I? Why should I do that? Well, the answer was given last week, wasn't it? We give the same reasons listed here because number one, friend, listen to me, God may turn away from you forever and tomorrow is not promised. And I wonder, is there someone in your life who needs to hear this? Or, I wonder, is that person you? Faith, we may not know what category such a person is in, 
Yet based on the word of God, the authority of God's word, what we do know for certain is that those who belong to Jesus, they will persevere in faith to the very end. That's a gospel promise. And one of the main means that God uses to help Christians persevere till the end are the warning passages in Scripture. It was so great. Last week, I had so many of you come up to me and ask me questions. And especially when we leaned in on this, on this, on this passage of this warning about falling away. And I had a chance to tell several of you face-to-face, I said, I know you're a Christian because you're responding to this warning passage precisely the way God wants you to. You're taking it seriously. You've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you love the Lord, and you want to go all in on him. You're hearing the warning, and you're responding accordingly. The person who's not regenerate says, whatever. And they keep living their life. God's promise that Christians will persevere to the end does not come to pass apart from his warnings, but through them. The sheep hear the warning from their great shepherd and they obey. So what I want to do is just for a couple quick minutes is I want to look at what are the symptoms of a hardened heart so we can, if we see them in our hearts, we can turn away. And Saul's life, I think, highlights three, though there are many more mentioned in Scripture. We're just going to focus here on Saul, okay? And the first is this. We're going to see that a hardened heart treats God as a means to an end. I want you to look again there at verses 5 and 7, okay? When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. The first thing we see is that a hardened heart, or the symptoms that maybe your heart is hardening, is that you treat God as a means to an end. Rick Warren tells this time when he and his wife had to go to an appointment down in Pasadena, which was south of where they lived in Southern California, uh, and they had to take two cars. So his wife got in her white van, and he got in their blue Oldsmobile, and he needed to follow his wife. His wife had the directions. He was going to follow her. Well, unsurprisingly, as they're going through Southern California traffic, they get in a little traffic jam, and they get separated. And for a moment, he loses sight of his wife's white van, but then he, follows, he sees it again, and he follows the, the white van. However, he gets 25 miles beyond Pasadena, until he realized he was following what? The wrong white van, right? And Rick Warren, he says this, he's like, look, I sincerely thought I was following my wife, but he wasn't. He was misguided. There can be the temptation to view Saul in a similar light, namely, that he was sincerely seeking the Lord, yet in the traffic of his life, he just got a little misguided. However, that's not the case at all. Friend, please don't confuse Saul as being a sincere person who wants to do the right thing here. 
No, as we kind of alluded to as we're reading through this text for the first time, it is very clear based on his actions and his speech that Saul does not want God. He doesn't want a relationship with God. All Saul wants is what God, what God can give him. How do we know this is the case? Well, for starters, 1 Chronicles 10, 13 through 14 make it crystal clear that Saul wasn't sincerely seeking the Lord. You can write that down and look that up later if you'd like to. And notice how clearly this manifests itself in the text I just read. All right, class. When the Lord was silent towards Saul, was his first thought to consider the fact that his sins separated him from God? wasn't even on his radar that his sinful actions could be contributing to the silence of heaven. So notice, instead of repenting of his previous sin and seeking the Lord in confession, what does Saul do? He turns to a medium or a witch, as some of your translations have it. I want to argue that these actions are demonstrating that all Saul wants is what God can give him, and he's going to explore whatever means necessary to accomplish that, even consulting a medium. And I want to suggest, Faith, that these can be the signs of a heart that's beginning to be hardened towards the Lord. You do not value God as God. No, he's a genie in a lamp. God is here for my life, and I just want God for what he can give me. And I think it's appropriate for us just to examine our hearts and consider the dynamics of our relationship with God. Christian, is God simply a means to an end for you? Meaning, he's just the channel by which what I really want is X, Y, and Z. Do you view him as being here for you to grant you the things you truly desire? Now, please hear me. This is really an important nuance. I am not saying it's wrong to ask things of the Lord. Indeed, we're commanded to do that. However, here's the telltale sign. If God doesn't give you what you want, are you still content and satisfying knowing that you belong to him? If Christ is all you have, is that enough? Or to be happy and content, you need the things that God can give you. So number one, a hardened heart, I think, treats God as a means to an end. But then second, it justifies sin rather than owning it. And I want you just to focus there and on verse 10. Okay, he, he disguises himself, he deceives the medium, He's doing something he knows is explicitly forbidden by God, which again just shows he doesn't want God. He just wants what God can give him. And in verse 10, after she says this, I'll, I'll go back in verse 9. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he's cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her, By the Lord! As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. 
I don't know if you know this or not, but ESPN has a feature every Friday on SportsCenter called the Weekly Not Top Ten. Hear this? The Weekly Not Top Ten. It's the worst athletic plays of the week. Well, if ESPN were to do a similar feature for the worst deeds in the Bible, I promise you what I just read would be near the top. Consider for, consider for a moment how crazy it is what Saul is doing in this text. Saul swears an oath in the Lord's name by the Lord's life as he seeks help from a source that the Lord has condemned. What would make Saul do such a thing? I'll tell you, a heart that is accustomed to justifying its sin rather than owning it and confessing it. Notice Saul is doing something forbidden in Scripture. And when the witch brings this to Saul's attention, what does Saul do? Does he own his sin? Does he turn from it? No, he justifies it, assuring the medium in the Lord's name that no harm will come upon her. That is nuts. How audacious. But is it really? In our honest moments, how often do we justify our sin? Now, we may not swear in the Lord's name to justify our sin, but honestly, church, and I've been asking myself this this week as well, how often do we make excuses for our sin rather than owning it and confessing it? I want to tell you, if you continue in the habit of justifying your sin constantly rather than owning it and confessing it and receiving Christ's cleansing, this is going to clog the spiritual arteries of your spiritual heart. Now, let, let me be clear. I'm not saying that to be a Christian, you never sin. Of course, Christians sin. Think about, think of what John writes in 1 John 1. The Bible says we deceive ourselves if we think we do not sin. The issue isn't whether or not we sin, but what do we do when we sin? Do we conceal it? Do we cover it up? Do we excuse it or justify it? Or are we quick to confess it and own it and then turn from it? We could put it this way, and this is so important, Faith. Please hear me. A Christian's life is marked by repentance from sin, not acceptance of sin. A Christian's life ought not to be marked by acceptance of sin, but it should be marked by repentance of sin. And the good news of, of the gospel and of our triune God is that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Amen? But when we conceal it and we hide it and we justify it, we cut ourselves off from the access to receive such forgiveness. Are you with me? Finally, I want you just to see that a hardened heart ultimately leads to rejecting opportunities to repent. And all I want you to do is I just want you to look there 
in the last section, verse 23, when he says, he refused and said, I will not eat, but his servants together with the woman urged him, and he listened to their words. He obeyed the words of the medium, then the Lord. An article from the magazine Fast Company began with this following paragraph, and it's quite intriguing. I want to share it with you. It begins like this. Change or die. What if you were given that chance? What if a well-informed, trusted authority figure said you had to make difficult and enduring changes in the way you think and act? If you didn't, your time would end soon, a lot sooner than it had to. Could you change when change really mattered, when it mattered the most? Change or die? According to the article, you know what the odds are that you will not change? Nine to one even in the face of certain death. The author based that statistic on a well-known study by Dr. Edward Miller, the dean of the medical school and CEO of the hospital at John Hopkins University. Listen to this. That study states that two years after patients undergo a coronary artery bypass, listen to this, 90% do not change their lifestyle though they need to in order to survive. Notice Saul was just given a word of judgment. And what does he do? Does he cry out to the Lord? Does he repent? No, who does he break bread with? The witch, the medium. This past Thursday at our men's study, we were talking about this. We are talking about Saul and his failures to repent. And actually, uh, Carter made a great insight that I'm going to steal. I'm giving him credit. But he, made this great, he made this great point. He compared Saul's response here of indifference, not doing anything, eating a meal with a medium, to Nineveh's response to the prophet Jonah. Remember, God sends Jonah to Nineveh and all Jonah says is judgment. Yet what did Nineveh do? When they heard that they're going to perish, that they're going to die, did they just start eating meals with witches and necromancers? No, it was the greatest revival in the history of the world. They all put on sackcloth and ashes and they repented. What a contrast here to Saul who should have known better than Nineveh. With Nineveh, they repented, and what did God do? He relented. Not so with Saul. He rejected every opportunity to repent. So here's my, my closing question to us this morning. How can we not be like Saul and these 90%? Okay, we know if we see it, these symptoms, we're to turn from it. But truly, 
How can we not follow in the steps of Saul? Well, I want you to look again at Hebrews 3. I'm going to throw it up here on the screen. It provides some good counsel as to how we can guard ourselves from hardening our hearts towards God and his word. Let's say it together, okay? Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Friend, you know what is needed for you and me to not harden our hearts towards God? Each other. Look at what the author says. He says, we must exhort one another each and every day. Friend, this is why we need Christian community. This is why we need church. This is why we need strong relationships with one another. Take a moment and look around in all seriousness. Each person here is God's gift to you to help you persevere in the end. And woe to you if you cut yourself off from that blessing. In the very text that the author of Hebrew warns us not to fall away, he also gives us the practical solution how we continue walking closely with one another, and it's by you and you and you and you and you and me encouraging one another. Don't, don't flirt with that sin. Brother, I love you. If you're seeing hardness, turn, come to Christ. Where are you struggling? How can I pray for you? Where's the battle for you? What, what, what promise of Scripture can I give to you? How can I be an encouragement towards you? Faith, the church ought not to be the place where we keep our relationships professional at an arm's distance. And I can promise you this. Talk to any pastor and they'll tell you 100 times out of 100 times without people, without fail, the people who fall away are those who retreat, retreat from the fellowship of God's people. Or they treat church as a one-hour-a-week box to check, and they never lean into situations and relationships where we can do exactly this, exhort one another. Faith by God's grace, we don't have to be like the 90%. Because his mercy and grace is more, we can repent and change. And may our lives at this church be marked by repentance of sin, not acceptance of sin. Amen? Let's pray.